During this pressing time, Ishai Fleischer, international lecturer, show host, and columnist, is launching a nationwide speaking tour to tackle your tough questions about the Jewish state. Ishai Fleischer is the director of Israel National Radio and founder of Kuma, whose mission is to energize Israel with identity and purpose. I love this place. I love this people. I love this land. I love this God. You've got to make a commitment that you're going to be a spiritual warrior, that you are not only going to open your heart, but make sure to open the heart of every other Jew. Put in it love, happiness, joy. Kill the cynicism. Stamp it out. Now is the time to stand up for Israel. Ishai's expert analysis based on recent events, world history, and biblical insight will cut away the hype and give you an insider's eye on Zion. To book Ishai for a venue, go to ionzion.com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. Folks, Prescott and I are very glad you could join us here today and appreciate you sticking around for another round uh, of our series. And it is a series, my friends, and it is called, Will the Real Messiah Please Stand Up? The reason I'm bringing that up is because last week we were having a heavy-duty discussion on emails that had come in to us that cited verses that are used as proof text that Jesus is the Messiah. So we've been going through that, and we're going to go ahead and continue on with that uh, today. And by the way, let me go ahead and bring in my co-host, Prescott Johnson. Prescott, are you with me, or have I drowned you out? I, I just thought you were going to carry the show by yourself, and I was going to let you. <laughs> well, this is the kind of thing, and you know, you and I both know this, we are passionate about. Yeah. We have sat in the same pew as many, many, many of our listeners have. Yep. And we had one thing in mind while we were doing that, and that was seeking the truth. Didn't much care where the truth landed, but we wanted the truth. And through that seeking and our willingness to have our eyes open, we have landed here. By the same token, we know that the discussions that we're going to have, they're not going to convince everybody. No. I mean, not everybody's going to, to, to change. No. Not everybody is going to do the homework necessary to prove themselves because, you know, maybe deep down they really don't care. Uh, but then there's going to be those that really do care about their eternal salvation. And I know we've you know heard that in Christianity, and we hear it in Judaism as well, only we refer to it as redemption and uh, the world to come. Yep. So anyway, we hope that for those of you who are questioning your belief system, for whatever reason, that you will take this to heart, that you will do the homework, that's, that is absolutely necessary for you to even come to a, a, a conclusion. And again, whatever the truth is, you've got to be prepared to accept it and move forward with it. Because that's the real question, mm-hmm. is once you get the truth, 
Now what do you do with it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what Prescott and I are, are hoping to do here in this series is, is help to explain uh, the truth, why we believe it's the truth, the sources for the truth, and, and, and basically give you what we can. We are the messenger, as it were. So please don't shoot the messenger. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> but, well, I guess we are kind of, we're, uh, I don't know if this is the right terminology, uh, and somebody will write in and correct me if I'm wrong. But you know we are we are kind of like uh, prisms that uh, you know uh, Israel and the Torah. This is the light that illuminates the world, and and we as Noahides we become like a prism where that light enters, and we kind of diffuse it and spread it around in different ways, perhaps than what Israel itself would, because we well we are we we play a different role and function than Israel does. And uh, as such, we can address some of the concerns that uh, Christians would be dealing with in ways that the most religious and observant Jew could not do because they don't understand where the Christian mind is. And I know that sometimes we, we can take a pretty hard line against you know Christians because... Uh, I've heard some people use language like they have a mental disease and things like that. Well, you know, when I was a Christian, I didn't have a mental disease. <laughs> Are you sure? Oh, no, well, I, I didn't have a mental <laughs> disease because uh, there's a difference between having a mental disease, you know, something that you can't do anything about, versus having perhaps uh, developed a, uh, I don't know if the word would be a psychosis, or or that because of wrong teaching... It lends itself to you developing certain attitudes and ideas that are just wrong and sometimes flawed and, well, I shouldn't say sometimes flawed, but flawed and sometimes leads to fanciful thinking. In other words, you, you, you adopt some, you know, you just become, uh, almost in a, uh, a, a, a never, never land. Uh, you know, you become, you become Peter Pan in, in another world. Have I really well, have I really you, taken this off you, the rails, Ray? <laughs> yeah, you really are. Um, <laughs> but, but here, but, but I know I know exactly where you're going with it, and yeah. you know a lot of a lot of people are that way. I was that way. I mean, I was a Christian a lot because they served coffee on Sunday, they served <laughs> coffee and donuts. I mean, what a way to go! I mean, it does, does it get any better than that? Okay, so they didn't do that I mean, for I, me. I'm I speaking. Didn't, I didn't. I'm speaking from a social yeah, standpoint. Yeah, yeah. that people sometimes don't want the truth because it. It hurts their standing in society. Well, yeah. Well, and like, if that's the case, then okay, do what you need to do, but it won't get you to the truth, and you will resent having not gotten to the truth when you stand before the right. maker for, for judgment. Right, right. Well, see, I, I bumped into uh, a gentleman that I had known, and, and he had not seen me since I had left the church, so that's how many years it has been since I've seen him. And um, and when I was talking to him, and uh, you know, when he found out that I w- wasn't going to church, that I wasn't a Christian, and wanted to know more about you know Judaism and this Noahide stuff, and we were just chatting, and and then once I got started getting into the theology and the doctrine, all of a sudden his eyes glazed over, and he said, "Well, I never really you know got into all that stuff," and he probably was more indicative of your typical church-going Christian who believed who maybe said a prayer, but never invested himself in really studying the scripture to find out if what he was being taught was the truth or not. 
And so, and this is why I say, like, you know, if you, if you embrace a religion that doesn't require you to use your brain, and that it is about just dis, uh, abandoning reason in favor of blind faith, then it can open the door to all kinds of um, all kinds of things that we would otherwise call mental disorder, but it's really not mental disorder. It's just believing really wrong things. You know, it's 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 kind of like if you believe something about um, about your neighbor that isn't true. It's going to affect how you interact with your neighbor, and and that is the thing is that it's not about what you know. What, it really is if you believe the wrong thing, it affects how you behave, and you can behave in erratic ways, although it seems consistent with what you believe to be true. But it's only because you believe it, even if it's not the truth. So we're just trying to steer people into the truth path. <laughs> well. Uh, so let's let's get back into this, and uh, we're still on the topic of birth. birth. And honestly, we had hoped that uh, we had given that a, a pretty good pasting in our our first two shows, but apparently not. And and so we're going to go ahead and continue on and use once again their own verses. And this one, I'm I'm you know, I'm really going to uh, jump over, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it was. It was in Micah five two and the point is the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, <laughs> what they're using in 5.2 is, therefore he will uh, give them up until the time when she who labors has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And, you know, in, in my estimation and in, in many's, that is referring to the Jewish people as a people. But it does in verse 1 uh, talk about somebody will come forth and be the ruler in Israel. But the, the thing that I'm more concerned about is that, once again, this is not a, a proof text that Jesus is that person. It could be any one of thousands of people, thousands of Jews who were born in in that town, and I know that they would argue. Well, it's all collectively. You have to bring do. You have to ponder it all collectively. Well, I am, and this doesn't. It doesn't you know, discuss anyone's birth. The verse in verse one talking about his origin is from ancient time. Well, and this is simply telling us that the Mashiach was created in ancient times, presumably by the ancient of days. That the Mashiach, the concept of the Mashiach was created, uh, just like the Torah was created before it was actually given. Uh, it was, it was created at the point of creation. And how could it not? Because Hashem is the Allah at to the top. He's everything. So, uh, the Mashiach had to have been created. So that's, uh, uh, it's not, again, it's not a proof text that Jesus is the Messiah. Nor does it even render that it's going to be a Messiah anyway by whoever's name. It, it just doesn't do it, as I see it. Yeah, well, and and the Messiah is, according to Christianity, not created anyway because he's divine. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I mean, this here, this here is the thing: is that as we look through all of these prophecies, it continually points to it, it points to an individual who would be born, but uh, the I guess it's it's the 
the question the question for the Christian is not just a question of did he fulfill prophecy, but do the prophecies really speak of a divine of God Himself being the Messiah? And that's what they're constantly trying to in, impose on the text. So in right, you know, and, and we we actually you know were talking about that before we went on that they, they talk about all these prophecies that he fulfilled, and it's very similar to saying, well, the Mashiach is going to be a Jew, and that would be considered prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> even though even though it is, but I that makes me a tremendous prophet then. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, on, 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 many, on, many, on many other things. But it's not a proof. Yep. It, it, is, it is not a proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It might be a proof that there is going to be a Messiah, but certainly not a, a proof that Jesus is that Messiah. Right. But anyway, you know, let's move on because obviously we didn't cover all of these verses in our uh, first couple shows. So you know, we want to address them all because people out there feel that they're important. Uh, so therefore, we feel they're important. The next one is from Daniel nine twenty five. The concept that they're presenting us here is the Messiah would be born at a specific time. And verse 25 is telling us, Now, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until the coming of an anointed prince shall be seven weeks, or septets. Then for 62 weeks, or septets again, uh, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. It's it's interesting uh, how how Rashi provides commentary on this, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and run through that real quick. That you know Rashi tells us that the septets refer to to a full seven year period, and that the prince that is mentioned is actually Cyrus, who gave permission to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, and he ultimately ascended to the throne. Interestingly enough, 52 years after the exile began, which is actually seven full septets, seven full weeks, as it was said, it's actually seven plus three. So actually winds up being these, these 62 that is being referred to in the verse. So, and again, they could say, well, that's Rashi's opinion, and we know that the Jews, they got it wrong. Well, okay. Um, it, it is not an indication in, in my mind, or as a proof text, once again, that Jesus is the Mashiach, or that he was born at a specific time. Uh, it, it, the specific time has something to do with something completely different. Hmm. So, and that is a tough one because it's Daniel, and Daniel, you know, is, a, is, a, is prophesying. Yeah, yeah. The the um and the and the thing that I that I struggle with this just is that I understand that when you when you're on the uh, other end and you believe that salvation is this kind of you know you know this personal moment of revelation and believing and saying a prayer and so on and so forth and then you put your faith and trust in that all of your future past and present sins are all going to be covered by the blood of Jesus and so on and so forth and so you begin to think of salvation in those terms, you think of redemption in those terms but 
um, when we go through the Hebrew Bible, that uh, that the idea of salvation was very much a a more of a physical manifestation that Sodom and Gomorrah was under a judgment and there was hope that it would have been spared that the people would have been saved from God's impending judgment Nineveh, God was going to pronounce judgment would have destroyed the city and it would have been a very real pronouncement of judgment and so Mm -hmm. here in Daniel it's actually talking about the time period where uh, uh, 77's are decreed for your people uh let me see. Get this right. Uh, Seventy weeks have been declared for your people in your holy city until the measure of transgression is filled and that of sin complete until iniquity is expiated and e- eternal righteousness ushered in. And this is the and this idea of eternal righteousness works well with the Christian lingo, right. Be- because they they have left the the traditional path of how we understand salvation in terms of God actually sparing people from, uh, you know, uh, famine, plague, sword, uh, invading armies, and and so on, and they've it turned it into this kind of spiritual thing of where eternal righteousness is ushered in, and therefore it works for for Jesus because even though. Uh, eternal righteousness was not ushered in in a very real physical way at that time period in the spiritual realm it did for the Christian but this this really requires one to uh, adopt a completely different view of salvation and judgment from what we read in in the Tanakh do you do you follow what I'm saying there, or have I? No, no, I'm 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 with you. Uh, and like I said, this is this is a tough one. In fact, uh, I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I almost wish I I didn't you know uh, use Rashi's commentary because I can't speak authoritatively sure. on it. And because it is a tough one. In fact, he all he went on further to say that you know the destruction of the second temple came 438 years after. Which happened to be 62 septet, 62 seven year period, and four years. So it happened in that 62nd set of seven years. So you know, but here again, it's a it's tough concepts, and for me, I would need to really sit under a, a rabbi and really have them ex- explain this to me. But you know, Daniel is this particular verse is a tough one, but nonetheless. I, I still don't see it pointing to Jesus. Well, and and that's because we don't see Jesus fulfilling the prophecies that would usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness, right? Because be, right. because that's what this is all about. This is about a timeline mm-hmm. that is that if we are to use the the Christian interpretation, this has to point to Jesus. If it points to Jesus, then the language that is used then gets, as I say, changed into a spiritual, you know, the the spiritual language of the Christian, which is that now salvation is open to everybody through faith, and there's no longer Torah, and so on and so forth. If that's the language that that is uh, that they are going to use, then that's how they're interpreting these verses. 
But if we are looking at the perspective that Daniel was dealing with uh, the children of Israel in exile and that they were looking to for salvation from the exile from uh, and the destruction of the temple at that time and you understand it from from that perspective then you're looking for or you're going to understand that the answer lies differently than if you're turning it into as i say if you want to turn it into eternal righteousness as 924 talks about then you have to show me that that happened with Jesus and it didn't happen with Jesus except for in a spiritual sense in the religion of Christianity it did not happen for the people living in Judea at that time the the well I just wanted to hit on something that you've really sparked in my mind, and that's the word salvation. Uh, John uh, 3.36 says, and this is how, this is the only way to salvation, is he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but shall suffer the everlasting wrath of God. Uh, well, okay. So the only way to salvation is is through Jesus, and yet from the Jews, the the rabbis share with us through the Talmud in Sanhedrin thirteen. It says the righteous of all nations have a share in the world to come. Uh, and there's also in the Midrash, it, it says I can I call heaven and earth as witness. Any individual, whether Gentile or Jew, man or woman, servant or maid, can bring the divine presence upon himself in accordance with his deeds. Hmm. And this is the rabbi saying this. It's salvation for all. It's not specific to a certain club. (laughs) The club is actually the righteous. Right. (laughs) Right, and this is why I I say... It hit me like a ton of bricks when you said that. Yeah, because if you're using this as some kind of timeline to establish certain things, then, as I say, you go... you If you run to the Christian theology and their doctrine, and then you come and you start reading these texts, it means something completely different than what it does when you're reading it from what the Tanakh itself expresses. It, is, it was kind of like a conversation that I had recently with um, with a family member, and I asked the question about Nineveh. Were the people of Nineveh forgiven? And a uh, member of the family basically said, well, no, they were they were saved from judgment, but they weren't forgiven. And when you go and you actually read the story about what the Ninevites did in terms of that they put on sackcloth and ashes and they repented of their wickedness and they stopped doing the wicked deeds that they were being judged for, God didn't just not punish them. He didn't just relent on judging them for their sin. He forgave them. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, I mean, it's a, a, I think it's in uh, Chronicles, if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. I will hear from heaven and will forgive them and heal their land. That's what the Ninevites did. They heard. You actually compare the language of Chronicles, uh, that prayer with with the story of the Ninevites. It's amazing. They did everything that God had previously said, you know, this is what you do in order to repent. You turn from your wickedness, and that's what they did. That's all we have to do. 
Well, Prescott, I can hear the, the, the passion in your voice, and, and I, I know that my I'm pretty passionate about this too, but we are really up against the clock here. We need to scoot for a break. Appreciate everybody being with us for this first half, and I certainly hope that uh, you'll stick around for the second half as well. It only gets better from here. See you on the other side, folks. Israel National Radio. Israel National Radio. You're listening to Israel National Radio. Israel National Radio. Israel National Radio. Israel National Radio. We're praying for redemption. Kidashta, the personal touch, invite everyone to their two exciting stores, one in the heart of Jerusalem and one in Modeim. Kidashta, the personal touch, is the epitome of elegant style and service. Sterling silver, artistic glassware, jewelry, teletot, mezuzot, and much more. And also features a full boutique wine department specializing in Israeli wines. And, of course, everything is available online at Judaica4u, Judaica, the numeral 4 and the letter U, dot com. Scott and I have been talking about a, a number of different things here, and we apologize if we get off into some rabbit trails, but I, I think you're beginning to, to get some of the context of what we're uh, discussing here. It all is relevant, but you know we apologize if we deviate from the topic at hand directly. So please you know, bear with us, and Prescott and I will do our best to rein ourselves in and try to stay on topic. <laughs> However, I did at the end of the show say that it only gets better from here. I wasn't kidding. So we're really glad you could stick around. And, and Prescott, I know you got your seatbelt on. I got my seatbelt on. Here is one of the favorites of Christianity, still in the category of birth, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And, of course, they use as the proof text Isaiah 7.14. Shall you start, or would you like me to? (laughs) Well, I'll let you. (laughs) Well... Again, folks, you know, take this. Uh, you do the homework. I mean, you need to do this. Uh, Isaiah 17, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a young woman is with child, and she will bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, in Christian Bibles, that verse is translated, Behold, the virgin is with child. This is how they come up with the virgin birth of their God or Savior, you know, the Messiah. This verse has, you know, quite frankly, it's even been put to bed already by a number of, of Christian Bibles. But this was purposely mistranslated in the New Testament. And, and, I, and I state that with a great deal of confidence in, in my evidence. 
in that the Hebrew word for young woman is Alma. Alma is the word that is used in the behold the young woman is with child. This is a correct translation. If, in fact, Hashem wanted it clear that our God, that our Savior of mankind was born a virgin, and he wanted us to know that, the word that Isaiah would have used in Hebrew would have been betula, mm-hmm. which literally means virgin. So it would read that, Behold, betula, the virgin, is with child. That was not the word that was used. And and I mentioned just briefly that this has already been put to bed by a number of Christian Bibles because the publishers recognize that this was a complete mistranslation. Now, of course, they're, they're like politicians who say that they made, they misspoke when we in the grandstand are saying, oh, you mean you lied. Well, these folks are doing the same thing and okay, whatever. It was a mistranslation, whether it was done purposely or not is irrelevant at this point because the translation is young woman, not virgin. Right. And now, I, I mean, okay, let me go ahead and finish this and then yep, you can ahead. take it away. Because I know, I mean, you're passionate about this. Is that <laughs> the birth that's being referred to here was actually assigned to King Ahaz during his reign. It's not a prophecy of Jesus. It is a prophecy about the, the son of King Ahaz and his wife was actually pregnant at the time. Right. Okay, Prescott, huh. it's all yours. Oh. <laughs> I think I've I think I've punished that verse enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I I've I mean there are different I think that there are differences of opinion for various reasons as to you know whether the child was the child of Ahaz uh, or has or whether it was Isaiah's son, and there are good and legitimate reasons for either interpretation when you go through the reasonings for why the two different possibilities do exist because i know that one of the uh, one of the one of the things that strikes me about and that is often used in criticism of the christian interpretation because those of us who would oppose the christian idea say jesus was never called emmanuel in fact the only time that he's ever called emmanuel is in the actual place where the prophecy itself is given in matthew uh, but Jesus himself was never called Emmanuel. Now, when one of the uh, uh, one of the responses that we had gotten was uh, specifically specifically points the fact that if this was one of the whether Ahaz or Isaiah's child, uh, the question was raised: Well, Isaiah's child wasn't called Emmanuel either, and the prophecy very clearly says that he would be called Emmanuel. And it was something that uh, you only discover when you start digging a little deeper beneath the English translations and start looking at the Hebrew language. And you discover that in Isaiah 8, because it's in Isaiah 8 where we learn about Isaiah's son being born and the language very reminiscent of the language that we find in Isaiah 7, uh, in Isaiah 8, Three, Isaiah was intimate with the prophetess, a prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, to Isaiah, 
uh, not his wife, name him Mahershalal Hajbaz. Wow, I didn't think I could say it that quickly. Anyway, <laughs> um, and so and so this this to me the language is an indication of a relationship between the language of Isaiah seven fourteen, where it says the young woman is with child or uh, and and is about to give birth to a son. In Isaiah chapter eight, he continues in uh, verse eight and swirl through Judah like a flash flood reaching up to the neck. But with us is God, whose wings are spread as wide as your land is broad. Now, what does the New Testament tell us the name Emmanuel means? God with us. Right. And what does this verse in chapter uh, 8, chapter 8, verse 8 says, But with us is God. And in the Hebrew, it is Emmanuel. In Isaiah 8.10, hatch a plot, it shall be foiled, agree on action, it shall not succeed, for with us is God, Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. And so what we see here is that Jesus was never called Emmanuel, but during the time of the birth of Isaiah's child, and if this is about uh, the child of uh, uh, Ahaz, then the time period would fit for him as well, that this phrase, with us is God, which if you actually look up the Hebrew, you will not find it anywhere else in the vicinity of this text. In Isaiah 7, it shows up once, and then in Isaiah 8, it shows up twice during the period of fulfillment of what this sign was supposed to be about. And we understand that the sign was about something going on at that time because just two verses before that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, I'm sorry, uh, three verses, in Isaiah 7.11, ask for a sign from the Lord. This is what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz. He's saying, ask for a sign from the Lord, your God, anywhere down to Sheol or up to the sky. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask and I will not test the Lord. He sounds like a very humble individual, doesn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. But in fact, Isaiah responds, Listen, house of David, Isaiah retorted. Is it not enough for you to treat men as helpless that you also treat my God as helpless? Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign. So this is a sign referring to the sign from the Lord that was about proof for Ahaz that God was going to deliver him. Right, and he was very adamant about it too. Yeah. He did yeah. not want the sign. He, uh, he he really didn't. So it's kind of a it's kind of a funny story when you get right down to it. <laughs> you, you're going to get the sign whether you want it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, uh, 700 years later, uh, you know, Christianity grabs a hold of that sign and they won't let go of it. Let go of it, although it was never theirs to begin with. But uh, right, right. But that but that is but this is. It is so clear when you actually look at Isaiah 7 and you compare it to the chapters that follow that this sign was not about a virgin birth to begin with. It was about the child, that the child was to serve as a timeline. Everything about the prophecy is about the son, not about the woman, not about the woman's condition, and that Christianity singles in on that. But they single in on it for a reason. They single in on it because of all of the quote-unquote prophecies 
regarding Jesus that they use. This one prophecy, as in my view, this one prophecy is the singular most important prophecy because it ties the idea of Jesus's divinity, the need in Christianity for Jesus to be divine, is tied to this idea that God fathered Jesus, and and this is and this therefore becomes absolutely essential to Christianity. That all of the other prophecies you could sort of you know debate whether it implies anything about his nature. This prophecy is the stepping stone of taking him from just a Messiah figure who would redeem or save Israel to where he is actually a divine being. He's a supernatural being, or at the very least, he's a he's a demigod. And this is what they're looking for. What is absolutely necessary is to find some way of turning him into this, which is really why, when you actually look at the prophecy itself in Isaiah 7.14 that it falls apart once you read it in context that it cannot it cannot point to a divine being nor can it point to a thousand years in the future nor can it point to the condition of the mother specifically being in any kind of a particular state that this here has has everything to do with the time of Isaiah and nothing to do with 700 years later and again there is a reason why it's absolutely necessary to pull this verse out and utilize it in order to establish the doctrines of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. Right. Well, we're going to be closing out the uh, whole birth thing uh, momentarily here because the uh, last one is the Messiah would be born during a time of infant massacre. And it's they're using uh, Jeremiah 31.15 as the proof text. And that says, Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And, uh, of course, this doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with the birth of Jesus. And, in fact, if you take everything in context, it's speaking more of idolatry than, than yeah. anything else. Well, and I, well, never mind. I won't go there. Uh, but it's speaking more of uh, idolatry. But, I, you know, we were in Jeremiah, and I thought that was interesting that he would wind up in Jeremiah. And I want to you know, kind of give off the page here, Something else out of Jeremiah. How do Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus? They uh, use they sing carols. Well, they have Christmas. Do they have Christmas oh. up in uh, Canada? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. And we're, clo- and we're closer to the North Pole, so. Okay, so I'll see you guys have uh, first dibs on on yep. Santa's toys, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, That's right. Uh, That's why we're more special. I I want to share this with you out of Jeremiah and ask if this reminds you of of anything. And this comes from Jeremiah 9 and verse 9. And it states, in fact, I need to go back a little bit more. Let's go ahead and go back to, okay, I'm sorry. This is in uh, Jeremiah 10. That's what was throwing me off. starts in uh, Jeremiah 10 and verse 2, where it says, 
Thus said Hashem, Do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be frightened by the signs of the heavens, though the nations are frightened by them. For the practices of the nations are foolish. For one takes wood that he cut down from the forest, fashioned by an artisan with an uh, aids, embellishes it with silver and gold, fastens it with nails and with hammers so that it does not come apart. And verse 5 says, They are like a sculpted palm tree. They do not speak. They are carried about, for they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do good. So what does this sound like to you that you know the, 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 the nations embellish this tree with silver and gold, they fasten it with nails and a, and a hammer so that it doesn't come apart. What does this remind you of? <laughs> can you spell Christmas tree? This is exactly what they're talking about. Now I suppose somebody could take me to task that oh well that's not what it's saying. Well, uh, you know, in in my opinion and in many people's opinion, that's exactly what they're saying. And further it's saying don't be foolish like the nations who basically go out in a forest, cut down a tree, fashion the thing, embellish it with silver and gold, which would be the ornaments, right? Um, yep. And even the tinsel is is a silver color. We don't really use nails anymore. I mean, people don't use nails to hold the tree up anymore. They now have these stands that have taken the place of nails. It does kind of make sense because jo- yeah. Joseph was a carpenter, so he would have used... Sorry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's a description of a Christmas tree. And Hashem is telling his people not to do this. So, so did they have Christmas? Him not to fear it. So what so does you, that tell us? Is 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 to try, if we're going to be righteous Gentiles? Uh-huh. What does it tell us as followers of Torah? What does it tell us? It tells us not to do it. Yeah. So now, guess what, now, folks? I don't have any Christmas trees in my house <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, For more well, reasons this, than just that, but that's an awful good one. <laughs> Well, there's there's two things that, that, that come to my mind about that verse. One is that I don't think that the prophet was looking in the future and seeing Christians with their Christmas trees and writing this prophecy about Christian Christmas trees. But what it is about is it is about a practice of the nations, the pra- uh, practice, pagan practices at the time of people taking and decorating trees. In other words... The Christmas tree came from somewhere else, and there was a there was a time, and it's kind of an interesting back and forth that goes on. But I remember uh, a time when, of course, um, you know, back when we didn't question these things, uh, you know, when I was a young fellow in the church. But along the way, uh, you would start hearing people around Christmas time talking about these stories of. You know, well, where did the Christmas tree come from? You know, and uh, and uh, because you know, did it really? Was it really something that was Christian in origin? And of course, they were pointing to the pagan practices, even in throughout Europe and so on, where 
before the Christian influence where there were these, where, where people basically had these trees and they would decorate them as part of their worship of, you know, of the, the woods and the trees and so on. And, um, and so that it was adopted by Christianity. And we see from this prophecy that this has always been kind of an earmark or a practice of paganism, these kinds of things. Right. So the so the prophet Jeremiah wasn't pointing his finger at Christians and their Christmas trees in the future. He was pointing out the practice at the time that has been that has been adopted by the church. Right. And, it's, it's and exactly, it's been carried over since that time. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, and so so the real the real lesson from this verse is the phrase not to take on the practices of the nations around you. And when we understand what that means, it means that anything outside of what the Torah instructs us uh, is something like in in terms of what the other nations do that are contrary to what the Torah teaches us. We are to avoid. We're just not supposed to do it. We're not supposed to be imitating what the nations are doing in terms of their idolatry, because that is what this is about. It's about those idolatrous practices. Right. And and so for for Christians who who then, because I know more recently, to follow up on my little story about what I, you know, the arguments uh, against using the Christmas tree, is that since then the church has really tried to find a way of taking these practices and trying to legitimize them, trying to find ways of making them acceptable because it'll be too hard for any any Christian to stand up and say, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing it anymore because it is wrong, because it is contrary to what the Bible teaches, contrary to what the prophets teach, because they have the prophets in their Bible too. And it's too hard for them to get people to let go of this. They just won't do it. Now, there are some Christians out there who will not put up a Christmas tree for this very reason because of this prophecy. They are out there. And, but this, this is, but this is something that, you know, Christians listening, if you're putting up a Christmas tree, you have to ask yourself that question. Are you imitating the nations around you in their pagan, idolatrous ways? Or do you really love the God of Israel? I know many claim to, but if you do, and you're participating in these practices, it does raise the question about how sincere that desire is to follow the God of Israel. And I can't help but agree. And once again, we are bumping up against the top of the hour, and there's just never enough time. And I did want to real quickly let folks know that uh, Prescott and I are kind of holding off on our new uh, plugged-in show while we're uh, doing this uh, series, Will, Will the Real Messiah Please Stand Up?, simply because... I mean, we take this very seriously. We're very passionate about it. We do a lot of homework. We do a lot of discussing. And quite frankly, it, it wears us out. So in, in, in favor of uh, being on our toes when we do do the plugged-in show, we want to you know be at our best. We want to be giving you uh, information, spur-of-the-moment kind of stuff. And we need to be fresh, really, in, in order to do that. And this type of thing just emotionally drains us. And uh, we apologize for that, but hope you do understand. And we are going to come back again next week and cover some more areas, such as uh, uh, the ministry 
of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus and uh, possibly some other things. But uh, hopefully we can put this uh, to bed within the next uh, couple weeks. And, you know, because certainly we're going to be getting more emails. <laughs> so we're going to want to be able to address yeah. some of those, too. We're just so. creating more work for ourselves. Right. So anyway, folks, listen, it's been great to, to have you here. It's been great to be with you. Prescott and I really need to scoot. So uh, let's get on out of here, Prescott. Shalom to everyone. Shalom to you, Prescott. Shalom, Ray. Get on that Internet. Find out what's really happening at IsraelNationalRadio.com. Arut Sheva is the place to get what's happening in Israel. Hi, this is Navy Charles. I live in front of the Kotel. I'm now speaking from a IsraelNationalRadio.com. You people who are listening to me should make sure that they come to Israel, or if they live here, then they should make sure that they listen every day. So if you aren't living in Israel now, you should get on your horse quick and come. Hello? Yeah, I wanted to know, do you deliver falafels to the top of Mount Zion? Great! I'd like a large falafel with pepperoni, sausage, and extra cheese. Yes, I know what a falafel is. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. You people are so pushy. What, Israeli people are pushy? You, stay there, surrounded by your great enemy Canada. Try Syria for two months, then we'll see who's pushy. Connect to Israel through Israel National Radio. 